Welcome to the PivotCast. This episode was recorded on March 7th, 2018 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Carolyn Morgan, Rebecca Papukaru, and Leslie Trites. Just so you know, this episode contains some strong themes, language, and sexual content. Listener's discretion is advised. It's going to get loud in here tonight, people. Wow! Uh, there's always like some kind of musical accompaniment from the other room, and today it just sounds like a sad trumpet. So uh, if you could choose your... Re- yeah, literally playing in the pitch dark, so I'm not sure. One time it was just a guy making bird noises, which didn't quite work with the readings, but this will be good. Welcome to Pivot. I'm going to read a land acknowledgement, and then I'm going to introduce our first reader, Carolyn. Uh, this land is the territory of the Huron-Wendat and P-10 First Nations, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, the meeting place of Toronto is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work in their community on their territory. Uh, okay, so I'm thrilled to bring up Carolyn Morgan. So Carolyn was born in the thick of winter on the Saskatchewan Prairie, a seventh-generation Métis on her mother's side. And a first-generation Canadian on her Trinidadian-born father's side, her work often explores the parallels of colonialism existing between these distant cultures. She graduated from the University of Victoria's creative writing program and currently lives in the Toronto area. What became My Grieving Ceremony is her first book-length collection and was released by Thistledown Press in 2014. Her second collection, Cartograph, explores healing through a variety of physical and emotional landscapes. Um... Thank you for the land acknowledgement. Um, I always would like to acknowledge the fact that we're here in a place that uh, is not the place of my ancestors. So um, I always sort of give a, a merci and mitchif uh, thank you to uh, those people who were the original caretakers of the land here um, for welcoming my ancestors in. When we come together and we speak of the dead, they are drawn to us and they're fed by our good intentions. So um, as we bring them in, uh, I just want to say an acknowledgement to the people who were here before. Um, I'm going to be reading from Cartograph, um, Riverbed. Walk to the place where the trees drop crab apples, sweet looking and bitter. Cross the street to the park where my dad flew his purple kite one September, then packed. Once. On the hill there, I trampled a ground wasp nest and was swarmed. My dad, afraid of insects, pulled me out too late. That night, my grandmother drew me an oatmeal bath, then slept with me and the nightmares. Walk on. Beyond the pathway where we rode our bikes to the art gallery on Saturdays, beyond a bluff where the sun filters through poplar snow, there, the hiccup of owls spitting up mouse bones, the scritch of chipmunks on spruce bough. There, all things unknown are dappled and brown. There, the place of the freckled. The path smells of dry leaves and droppings. Be still, despite the mosquitoes. Follow the sound of the river to where the bank is dull and crooked and the water copper cold in spite of summer. Many times I washed my feet here when I was a child. Put your face to the current and drink. My father makes bake. 
dripping tap water from his brown fingers into the dough, forming a flat, warm mound, then piercing it with the prongs of a large fork. He slices strawberry and apple into the bull jowl, bringing to mind his eldest brother, who lies voiceless in a home in Trinidad, withering from some elder's disease. Remarks again how my granny would be horrified at the addition of fruit. Uncle's recipe, he says, the island years removed from his cadence. My father doesn't weep when he chops the onion, and the kitchen smells of salt cod and hot sauce. Here, among the autumn frost, with his black and careful hands, he knows he is making bannock in the old way. These days, my father does not eat green iguana. Here, he sucks the meat from rabbit bones. So I'm going to preface, I'm, I don't do a lot of vamping, but I'm going to preface this just by saying that uh, a lot of the poems in this book have to do with an injury that I um, sustained and the recovery from the injury. So there's um, anatomical poems and geographical poems. So this one is, uh, it's called Vernacular of Injury. This language of blood and muscle and bone housed on the walls of an examination room, charts of human injury, worrisome, promising, chronic, benign. Roadways of artery, the in, the out, each strain in the shoulder and back, I cannot learn their proper names. The doctor enters, pressing the curtain aside, palms her manicured hand into broken muscles and clucks as though it were I who slammed the brakes too hard and whipped myself into this elderly state. She asks how long since the accident, mistaking that it helps me to talk. I look at the posters instead. I feel like screaming all the time. I lied, I'm going to vamp a little bit here. This one's called The Girl Considers the Rainbow, and it's just, if uh, anyone's familiar with a collection of poetry by Intozaki Shang called uh, For Colored Girls Who Consider Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. So this is The Girl Considers the Rainbow. Did I consider the rainbow, not the rainbow, nor suicide, nor the wide back of a man walking away with all my stuff in tow? Yes my stuff, all. Did I consider the rainbow or the mellow song of a single girl, a man who smiled a little too long, coy dogged his way in, then palmed my stuff into his cracked paw like mud? No, not rainbows, nor suicide, nor yellow half-black girls, but retail. The rag bin, marked down, price to clear, slashed, that what can I get with what I got? That change that slips between the sofa cushions, a creased brown bag wet at the mouth. Should have been the rainbow, yes. Yet, there it went. All my stuff, like you said. Was it the rainbow I considered? Again and again, that virgin hair, that kitchen curl that hedges the neck, which never grows and constantly betrays the, fat, the flat and shining locks that swing above it. See, he looked a little too long, and I thought, nice to be looked at at all. It's true, I was that girl more than once, and the deal seemed fair. 
half off, half full, half black girl, ten scarlet toenails, a thousand tea-colored freckles plucked like Saskatoons, then sucked of sweetness and handed over, handful after wet, handful. Was it the rainbow I considered or just a place for the crooked bones of the face to rest, for the dull cut of male shoulder blades, two ears with the Willie Nelson song always playing always, two chipped and crooked front teeth, the scar from a fever blister under the bottom lip, and as a bonus for shopping, each breast well over a handful apiece, packed in, rolled up in a careful row, the rainbow, suicide. Neither was she bitch nor simple, just a little cold, perhaps, tired, yes. Consider the rainbow, neither the rainbow nor suicide, nor, nor a now fingerless woman who cannot dial a phone or rub the sleep from her eyes, just me, carried away in a discount bag, jangling and tucked tight under the work-roughed elbow, airless and heavy and worthless. Falling. <clears throat> And what of snow, how it quilts the ground, makes the spruce bow, how gently it comes silently building, always building, leaving its imprint on the garden flowers, late squash, how it fight ba fights back the crocus who boasts in spring, whether the snow is ready for sleeping, how human we become in it, ducking into our pulled hoods, shedding our gaze from its delicate burn, how it vampires our body warmth, sucking itself back into rain. How it settles on our face like tears. And oh, the folly of snowplows shoveling the drive, moving its bulk to the banks while it stubbornly coats the path that we've cleared. We watch it creep for weeks down the mountain, pulling green to white, until the morning we awake and see that our lawn and truck and the bike left slumped on the walkway are no more. It presses the branches back to the earth. From the sky place, through my window, Mabel, my grandmother, asleep 50 years, and beside her, older still, Kakako, the raven. Wider is the window as they enter, the grannies are all here tonight for me, BBC's the granddaughter. I am the one they've been watching. They think my bones have all grown wrong. Raven says, if she were a bird, her bones would bend backward. Yes, says Mabel, but she is a woman, not a bird, and these bones have never bent backward. From the sideline, why you speak so, blackbird? This bull-faced child been wild all she life. But wait, nah, bird, nah, bird. The problem here is this child don't know where she come from. She can't listen. Mabel remembers them back to the night I walked blind drunk into the sofa leg. That night, my third toe splintered, but did not bend. Years they have been sleeping, and still they know my bones. While I sleep, they run fingers and feathers along the molars of my spine, keyed ribs. They press into the tangle, tibula, femur, ulna, radius, the mapped cracks of a fractured ankle, a locked jaw. Puzzle me back. Empty, says Raven, but she is not a bird. They enter the rusted gate of my sternum, eh eh, just blood. 
a heart and lungs. It's no wonder she does not grow. They tell their stories into the web of blood. Kakakao sings with his remembering tongue, and the grannies beat their many drums. They fill the space, metacarpal, deerskin drum, metatarsal, steel pan, blunt roots, incisor, all the places where young bones meet, weave pelvis through rib, 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 radial nerve bundle, the spot which opens the hand, I sink into the mattress's nest, body fighting, breath. It will hurt, says Raven. Mabel says, it always does. Trinidad, 1957. Entrance exam, Queens Royal College. 4 a.m. The boy muffles the electric alarm he keeps beneath his pillow. In the dark room, his older siblings sleep tangled. The baby, Dennis, six years old, sleeps with their mother still. Their father, Milton, is dead five years. The eldest boy, Andrew, is nearly grown, restless for Canada. The boy sleeps each night above his ticking clock, time breaching the shortest sleep. He is 10 years old, and already his sisters have begun to marry. He wakes, creeps into the kitchen to mark out his sums. One thing he knows, above all else, he does not want to be a mechanic. He cannot be. He scratches the yellow sleep from his eye. He has learned the names of each island in order, labels again their perfect arc on the blue Caribbean Sea, writes, sedimentary and sand, mountainous and jungle, maps each region, imagines himself grown, oil stains on dull coveralls. He cannot be a mechanic, and so he does his sums. At school, he has learned to make no mistakes, to never speak out, to commit to his mind each line of Shakespeare. In secret, he loves Sherlock Holmes, but the hound of Dartmoor will have to wait. He studies until the house comes awake. Today, he is scrubbed, uniform pressed. His mother slips a few dear coins into his pocket, their weight new in the lining. She does not remind him how important today is, but instead rubs a brush roughly on his hair and wordlessly tugs his collar straight. Andrew drives him to town. He will make his own way home. Strange, the school's stillness. Cricket bats dashed on the pitch, the hallways windless and heavy. There are only two from his village here. All strive, but the prize is not for all. 30,000 boys pressed into 19 narrow spaces. He feels the engine grease under his trimmed fingernails. These halls have fallen motionless, save for the frantic penning of fact. Afterwards, he finds a diner with a stretched and polished counter, pulls himself up on a high bar stool. He has been to the city before, but never on his own. This is the first meal he has eaten in a restaurant. He orders a cheese sandwich and peanut punch eats hungrily, sleep creeping back from months of study. This is the nicest meal he's ever tasted. 
He swings his feet high above the well-swept floor. I'm just gonna read two more, I think. I was only gonna read one, but I feel like you guys don't have a choice. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this one's called Rib of Adam. She clings like a starved fox, her swallowed fear, the frosting over of pavement too early in autumn, fittingness of winter after the fall, how my sisters loved the end of summer and all the ways we learned to mourn, us, our vaginal grace, the old bones of Eve, canoed ribs, rapidity of cells. Her dark eye socket, a tunneled hive of blood and nerve. We married her beauty long lives ago. First woman, wise woman, grandmother, the bitch coyote, big-lipped, curved, rough heels stamped into sand. This, the elegy we sing as we exit our mothers. The last snow of spring, the cow leaving the barn for the pasture, the farmer stalking her, bringing her stubborn, swollen body back to the safely lit barn where her calf will be born, braying, licked clean, moved from the barn to the mudroom for warmth. How there the calf will cry through the porch screen for its mother, milk heavy and restless in the yard, elegy, the oldest woman's song. And this is the last one. I've never read it before out loud, so here it goes. It's called Mabel, for the baby, Mabel. I had that name once. Monkman, the family name. Mother was Maggie, a midwife who delivered the Indian babies on the Halcrow Reservation. Father was James. They were married 58 years. I had a sister called Sarah, an uncommon name. Never was it pronounced properly, never spelled correctly. Sarah, my eldest sister, and I, Mabel. My hair grayed after my 16th birthday, and I feared I would never be beautiful. I cut it short, wore it just below my earlobes. Always was I skinny and tall, every joint angled and sharp, corners and rails. I never smiled when my photo was taken. When I married, I left the reservation and never returned. He was Ted, mischief and kind, chased from Ireland by a stern and lawful family. He was broad, but was not tall, his jeans cuffed at the ankle to keep them from dragging in the mud. He made his way to Canada, out of his father's view, and married an Indian girl. Though after that day, I was Indian no more. My children, were Irish, they were gifted their father's name. A plume of noise and fists and legs were my children, four, wild as night. My girl, Nora, wildest of all, blessed with her father's good humor and her mother's bad temper. I put them out in the yard to cool them off, even in winter, bolted the door on them, every one. My boys I gave to the war, what a time that was for mothers. They volunteered for the promise of work, said they wanted to see the world beyond Saint Louis. So proud were they in their army greens when I kissed them each goodbye. Three I gave, two returned. They worked the rails, married, had babies, came home as promised, but my youngest, Reg, never came back, survived the war, then vanished. 
leaving me with a single photo of us stood on the porch on the day he shipped off. Lifetimes later, they would find him again, living hard on the streets of Vancouver, stubborn as a wolf pup. By then, I was a long time gone. I had never wept for relief of finding him my youngest. Never did we mourn him well. The last thing I did as a mother was to watch my boy John bury his little girl. That was the last year of my life. I sat at his kitchen table, a bowl of sour cream and brown sugar growing warm in front of me, and watched him staring his grief into a cup of strong black coffee. I did not go to him. Perhaps the only comfort I had left me the day my youngest boy did not come home. I had nothing to give, and so I watched. They buried me in autumn, and I went to the grasses, returned to my mother and her people, shook off my Irish name, and remembered the name of my bones, Monkman. Still was I skinny and gray-haired, angles and corners and rails, mother, grandmother, widow, unsmiling and quiet as a quail. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Actually, I should mention we have two writers, Rebecca and Leslie, who came in specifically for this all the way from Montreal. Uh, yay! It's still winter. Traveling sucks. Um, so we're very thankful that they were able to make the trip. Um, okay. Rebecca Papukaru's first poetry collection, The Panic Room, was a finalist for the A.M. Klein Prize for Poetry uh, from the Quebec Writers' Federation. Poems have appeared in ARC, the New Quarterly, the Malahat Review, the Literary Review of Canada, and Event, among others, as well as Canadian Ginger, I Found It at the Movies, an anthology of film poems, and the best Canadian poetry in English. Please welcome Rebecca. I'm strangely nervous because there's people. I don't know why I didn't <laughs> think there would be people. So I'm going to begin. I'm going to read two new, two new poems that are uh, forthcoming in the fiddlehead at some point. So they have someone stamp of, of approval. And then I will read some poems from my book. And um, my mother passed away in October. So I've been dedicating all my, my readings to my mother's, which I can actually hear my mother saying, like, just stop, get over it, just read. I don't. <laughs> but I want to because my mother uh, was a second-generation Torontonian and grew up in this city and loved the city very much. She did not die here. Um, but I brought her back, uh, so to speak, uh, afterwards. And um, my father came here from Romania as a child and grew up not too far from here. And so I feel like it's a bit like I'm near ground zero of my existence, which is terrifying. <laughs> but um, okay. My partner is always telling me to explain my poems. Uh, he is French-Canadian, so you'd have to imagine a, a very intense French-Canadian accent. Explain the poem. No one will understand the poem if you don't explain the poem. But I'm not going to explain this poem, because I think you are going to understand it. There is a footnote in the poem, which I'll do my best to read. So this is one of the poems coming up uh, in the fiddlehead. It is called Shy Nipples. Shy Nipples. Say it. Say this word, nipple, unerotic, no? Now try it with this modifier, inverted. Not unusual, the pediatrician told mother, 
but hardly common. We left his office with instructions for the Hoffman technique, today disavowed by nipple hygienists. And the, just to explain to you what that is, uh, the Hoffman, te Hoffman technique, and I may mispronounce one of those words that I rarely say, uh, is manual stretching exercises of the areole. Did I say that correctly? You know, your fried eggs without the, um, okay. My pubescent breasts had dimples for noses. My plight, three grades. The best pledged a sheepish stiffening in frigid weather. But the dreaded third tug at my lactiferous ducts till the cows come home, but sans surgery, my sweater puppies would have to get along without snouts. Breastfeed? Sure, with the aid of a hospital-grade electric pump. Then one cold morning, there they were. Flat, yes, but protuberances all the same, twin drunks popping out for a smoke, then withdrawing to the warmth of their respective taverns. Could I lose my virginity on an iceberg? Some marquee, a pair of busted neon lights above my door, yet I never lost a patron. Now, in midlife, they found an audience. Manual exams, mammograms, ultrasounds, such public airings have gone to their heads. Denied fulfillment of their true design, they strain against my bra cups, eager for the next audition, freckled noses upturned, unmilked wonders scenting spring. And I'll read the other one, which is uh, also coming up in the fiddlehead. They liked my tits, and <laughs> they liked my butt, more or less. This one is called Holy Thighs, and uh, there's French in it, so I'm sorry about that. Hosiery Department, Monoprix Versailles. Medium, the younger of two sales clerks, rules. Having received my benison of Thai moyenne, I leave for the aisle, but the doyenne orders me to stop and lift my skirt. Sacre crease! Holy thighs! What size nylon casings could ever circumscribe such clappers of thunder? Men's thighs hold the farts of antiquity. Abraham ordered his servant to place his hand under the patriarchal thigh and swear a common form of testifying. Monotheism, it was believed, resided there. Zeus stitched the infant Dionysus into his thigh from whence he was born to raise hell a second time. My lot, pocked fromage frais and metro map veins. Roquefort, not marble. Moist where they meet, papery when parted. A dairymaid's saddlebags. Norman barn before dawn. The maid safe on the shore while her lover slips and slides. Fruition in friction. She wipes her thighs with her skirt, then picks up her pail, unruffled as her milk. So I'll read a few from this, The Panic Room. Um, I think I'll read a sort of Toronto-centric poem, uh, since I am in Toronto. And it's about the passing of my grandfather, who was born in Toronto and lived here all his life. It's called Sunnybrook Hospital, Toronto. 
and it's dedicated to my grandfather from Murray Libman, 1917 to 2008. And there is a Yiddish word that I may mispronounce, so I apologize in advance. Comfortable, sir, the nurse asked, adjusting grandfather's pillow under his head. Never one to resist a kibitz. I make a good living, he said. I'll let that settle. Mother combed out his knotted hair while he read the sports page. From the age of 20, he'd Christianized those dark curls with brill cream, just like his chavarim, his good fellows. He crooned the jingle to me in my cradle. A little dabble, do ya? That follicles are now tested for DNA and banned substances wouldn't surprise him. A man's pate will always rat him out. And so, in old age, he gave up the pomade and went au naturel, his graying Jufro, the reclaimed, freeborn crown of every self-made man and his bookie, who answered to Baruch and Sheldon, who drove Lincoln Continentals, who played gin rummy and mahjong, who wore velour sweatsuits and sandals, who dropped out of Harvard Collegiate, who toasted at Seder's next year in Manhattan, who deploring the weight of their unshorn heads at Christie Pitts in 33 and armed with lead pipes battled the Hitlerites. Taking leave of his body, we laid hands upon what remained of him indivisible as ether. In the cab home, the animal scent of unwashed hair on our fingers. Okay. If I had your c I would use it as a mail opener, paperweight, Tetris partner, emotional sundial. Put up your put up your picture with it. Cheat on my taxes with it. Grind pills, pigment, and spices with it. And it goes without saying I would shoot pool with it. Start fires with it. Write my name with it. Cross my T's and dot my I's with it. Carry old men's chopping bags with it. Shoehorn my good pumps on with it and rolling out dough with it would offer you a selection, plain, chocolate, or cinnamon. Then I would figure out some way to floss with it. <laughs> Never hesitate to mention it in polite conversation. Use it casually, formally, lovingly, disdainfully. Point out shooting stars with it. Look at porn on the net with it. Go to market displaying my merchandise on it, my standard unit of measurement, sterling standard, star sheaf in our nation's breadbasket. Hang our dirty laundry gray and weeping on it while I rest my feet on it, stirring a G&T on it, and write you this poem in invisible ink. Um, I think I'll... <laughs> go back to my grandfather after reading these poems. That actually, he would enjoy it. He had a delightfully filthy sense of humor. Uh, this is a Villanelle, I believe it is. No, it is. Um, called 91 Years, which is the age my grandfather, won grandfather was when he passed away. Um, after he passed away, at the time I, I, I had come to Toronto to spend time with him, and then I went back to Montreal, and a very strange thing happened. I was taking the train back, and I had all these bags of my grandfather's books. He had all kinds of wonderful books. Uh, so much Philip Roth. 
um, but also James Joyce, just wonderful books. And when I uh, got out of the cab, the station had been transformed into a film set, and they were filming uh, something that seemed to be set in the 1930s. And I thought, I've stepped out of this cab with my grandfather's belongings into maybe the worst decade of his life because of the Great Depression. He had to uh, leave his job, I mean, uh, sorry, quit school and begin working at a very young age. So um, I tried to write a villanelle about it. Uh, again, 91 years. So um, it begins with one of my father's uh, grandfather's favorite expressions, very much born out of the Great Depression, I believe, uh, strike while the iron's hot. Strike while the iron's hot, so he thought best. Here for his effects, I find Hollywood's glow, 91 years of life stowed in one chest. While at Union Station, stand-ins take their rest, newsboys trumpet dust and crops that won't grow. Strike while the iron's hot, so he thought best. A betting man, grandfather liked to test his luck at card tables, all at one go, 91 years of life stowed in one chest. Extras and fedoras and cloche hats jest, grandfather waits for the last train to show. Strike while the iron's hot, so he thought best. At 16, he knew which trains traveled west, hobos, shoe shiners, a trickster on furlough, 91 years of life stowed in one chest. The star leaps at his director's behest, grandfather on the ledge grows in sorrow. Strike while the iron's hot, so he thought best. 91 years of life stowed in one chest. The last section of this uh, recounts uh, an experience that I had. Uh, I, l I was lucky. I lived in France, in the south of France, for three years, uh, where I taught at uh, universities, and I had um, a boyfriend uh, of, for two weeks. <laughs> and <laughs> for two weeks, uh, he was, well, he was, he was, his profession, he was a truck driver, and his job was to transport live fish across Europe. And so that was the crux of our relationship. We met in Spain. I joined him on the hall. <laughs> and it was two weeks of fish husbandry and <laughs> and then fish husband husbandry. And so the last section, I keep hitting myself, very unprofessional. The last section of this is about him and about that experience and about being uh, steeped in, in a very masculine world. Uh, there were truck drivers of many European nations, all of them male, uh, so I thought it deserved something. So um, I'll read a poem, the, the first, or actually the second poem in that section uh, about him. Uh, in the poem I call him Didier. So it's called Game, and it's about him. The most French Frenchman I ever met. After that man in striped wife beater and blue beret drawing caricatures on the promenade des Anglais, red scarf tied round his fat neck, Didier ate dessert with baguette, longed for Coquille Saint-Jacques and the lavender fires of Set. His name for me was La Petite. Une belle huître, he'd say, hacking up phlegm, a pretty oyster I've made. He taught me to hold 
a champagne flute by the stem, to eat cheese at room temperature only, to taste la mer in a raw sea urchin. Didier liked to shit with the door open, greeting each splash with sa porte de bonheur. Sorry, excuse-moi, my accent's not great. When he asked, tu fais les petits caca ou les gros caca, I had no words. Didier, by his own admission, had been denied by the teeth and hair fairies. Balding, he wore rimless glasses and badly kneaded crowns. Before sleep each night, he slathered cold cream on his face and scalp. If he lived to 40, he would sail away on his boat. What about me? Should I be so lucky? Red wine aggravated his hemorrhoids. But he taught me to turn the bottle as I poured so none of it would spill. Our first night in his truck, he squatted in the cabin, pants down, grimacing, closing the windshield curtains. He said the last woman he'd been with had thrust her finger up his ass, fissuring his anus. His asshole, therefore, was off limits, but for anything else he was game. With my ass on his dashboard, his freshly creamed head between my knees. Une belle huître, he said to me. And I should say that before I went to France, or maybe I shouldn't say this, my dad told me very insistent that uh, France had a uh, ministry of anal health, and he was <laughs> just absolutely convinced of this. I never saw evidence of it, but um, I'll read one last one, which is, which is very short, and then hand it over to Leslie. Uh, this is called Ceasefire. Uh, I'm going to make reference to the artist Ingra, which I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, I-N-G-R-E-S. Um, ceasefire. So, I look like one of Ingra's harem bathers wearing leggings and sneakers jogging toward you. But do I deserve you telling me that the Dairy Queen is behind me? To what citadel will you retreat once you've taken us fat women down? How will you fill the sudden void by seeking relief from spoonable solids? More of you to love, man on the street. Come, race walk beside us. Admit you'll ball when we've fallen and the jogging tracks reek of gunpowder and scorched sugar. Till then, man on the street, we'll share our gluten-free rations. I probably should have introduced that by saying I, uh, it's the about being harassed while exercising in public by the man on the street. Not to, I'm sure all the men here are good. Um, <laughs> that's it. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for your patience. Leslie Trites from Montreal is the author of the story collection, A Three-Tiered Pastel Dream, out with Vehicle Press in 2017. Her writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Maison Neuve, Afar, Carte Blanche, and Tapello Quarterly. Winner of the 2016 Three Max Carte Blanche Prize, she lives in Montreal, where she is the associate editor of the Montreal Review of Books. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. It's, um, it's great to be back in Toronto, and it's particularly special to read in the annex. I lived in this neighborhood about 14 years ago, and it's kind of amazing how much um, is still around, like Future's Bakery, just beside. 
Uh, so I'm going to read from my story collection, A Three-Tiered Pastel Dream, and uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from a story called How to Be a Widow. <clears throat> when Carrie looks up at her, pale green eyes pleading, and asks when Daddy is coming home, Kelly knows she has to tell Carrie the truth, but she can soften it. Instead of saying, your daddy blew his brains out in that cabin I didn't know about until three years into our marriage, she can say, your father had a sickness in his brain and then he died. That's what the literature recommends. When Carrie runs up to her that first morning on the beach at the Mexican resort where Kelly has brought her to get away from the looks of, of pity, yes, but also curiosity and something a little like blame, when Carrie shows her a jagged piece of seashell and clutches it to her ear, saying she doesn't hear anything, Kelly tells her to keep listening. Carrie skips toward the water, lithe in her lavender bikini, an impulse purchase. How to tell her more of the truth? Kelly still hasn't managed it. She wanted to talk to her on the plane, but Carrie had huge headphones clamped over her sleek little head, green eyes transfixed by the screen, and Kelly couldn't bear to break that spell. She offered Ke Carrie a box of chocolate-covered almonds instead. Carrie eyed her suspiciously. Sugar was outlawed in their house and shook her head. When their room is finally ready, Kelly tries not to cringe when she sees the rose petals fluttered into the bathtub, the towel swans necking on the bed, the champagne frosting in the minibar. She realizes resorts are meant for couples. Carrie jumps onto the bed and decapitates the swans with a swift kick of her flip-flop clad foot. Kelly's mother had suggested the trip. Take the child away somewhere, she'd said, away from all this, the whispers, the eyes that looked away, then back, recomposed into an expression of adopted benevolence the how-are-yous that don't want a truthful answer. One month now of waking up alone. Without the bulky presence of his soft body next to hers, absorbing the nightly news. Without his hand to warm the small of her back when they followed the waiter to a table at their favorite Italian place. Without his laugh, especially the one that came from somewhere deep in its gut and only surfaced when Carrie was around. A month of arrangements and administration, heartbreakingly mundane. The adrenaline that had carried her through had slowed to a drip. When Kelly wants to surrender to the crashing violence of green waves, to let them swallow her whole until there's nothing left but a straggle of dirty blonde seaweed, she stops. She releases the breath she's trapped. She closes her eyes, pauses, opens them again, and orders a mojito from the cute shirtless bartender and pretends she doesn't notice that look from the soggy couple with their guidebooks spread open on the bar who are judging her because it's not yet noon. She smiles as she feels the warm grains beneath her feet, the cleansing drink in her hand. She lets the lime and sugar and rum slide down her throat. She chews on a piece of mint. She avoids asking questions especially the biggest one, which hangs two inches in front of her lips. She swats the whys away like flies. She tries not to think about Keith, 
About the time, at a place like this, he bought pink and orange Bermuda shorts, glorious in their ugliness, that rendered a cartoon version of his usual black-clad self. Carrie coaxing them into chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream cones and rounds of Pac-Man at the beachside arcade. Carrie cartwheeling down the beach into the fog. Carrie beaming at the two of them, taking Kelly and Keith's hands and fitting them together. She tries not to think about how easily Keith tanned. Sunscreen was for wusses, he'd bragged. But the sun was stronger than him. The worst burn of his life, he'd moaned afterward as Kelly applied the aloe vera. She awoke in the night, the sheets slick with aloe, the sound of his ragged breath, the sweet smell of salt drifting through the open window, Carrie's slim white form in a pool of moonlight on the cot in the corner. Their first evening, she and Carrie go to dinner, table for two. The breeze licks Kelly's bare shoulders. She orders grilled calamari, garden salad, and a glass of white. Carrie has a bowl of vegetable bow tie pasta. Kelly notices the perfect teeth of the man sitting alone at the next table, like Keith's. Pure white, straight, square, strong enamel, no stains. Kelly could tell a lot about someone from their teeth. Stains show overconsumption of wine or coffee. Discolored roots indicate use of a particular brand of birth control. Erosion, maybe an eating disorder. She could take one look and approximate a personality. Stressed caffeine and alcohol guzzling grinder or meditative mellow yogi. Inattentive let things fly type or meticulous tooth care zealot. Keith's teeth were almost too perfect. She wondered what he was hiding. Just one thing, a small, tiny fracture in his left molar. She told them she could fix it the first time they met, him in the chair looking up at her from behind cheap plastic goggles, brown eyes shining in the light. But he said no. Your teeth are your business card, her professor said in dentistry school. Most people don't think about that when they keep their floss hidden in the back of the cabinet until the day of their dentist appointment. White, unstained teeth can take five years off a person's age, increase their attractiveness by 20%. When she and Keith went out the first time, she added five years to the age she thought he was while he dipped chips into salsa. She'd taken a shot of rum before leaving her apartment. She hadn't been on a date since, since college and she was nervous. Keith kept her wine glass full of sangria and plied her with questions. How did you manage to become a dentist by, what, 22? Nice try. She hadn't been ready to tell him her age, 26, which didn't sound as good as 24 or even 25. Some guys want a younger woman on their arm. Plenty of guys in town like that. Guys who buy her a vodka cranberry when she went to Sweetwater's and swayed her hips on the dance floor. She'd accepted because it was a small town, and who'd heard of the date rape drug? Small, small talk. Soon as they realized her age, her profession, they bolted. Her teeth misled them. Keith, though, he walked her through a surprise June hailstorm and kissed her on the cheek on her front porch as tiny white balls pinged off their heads. The next afternoon at the pool, Carrie plays in the shallow end, and Kelly tries not to think about Keith's kiss, 
the smoothness of his never-chapped lips. When acquaintances said the things people say at funeral homes, this too will pass, or it'll get better, or I'm so sorry, honey, she focused on their teeth, how naked it made them. The things she could learn when they opened wide to fit a smoke trout canapé and she could get a better look. She had a practice to maintain, now more than ever, since she couldn't count on Keith, not even as a patient. By the time he died, Keith's teeth were less than perfect. Fillings, stains from the wine they drank together, the cigarettes he smoked alone. His teeth went downhill as soon as she took him into her care. She saw the hard edge of resentment in his eyes, the pain she was inflicting. She tried not to take those looks personally. She became a dentist in those moments, not a lover. She tried not to let it wear on her like acid wears down enamel. It's already getting dark. It's warm here, but the sun still sets early this close to Christmas. Servers cast long shadows as they light shallow candles on each table. Keith always hated candlelight. The flickering did something to his brain, he said. It made it hard to concentrate. He preferred darkness. She thinks of the time she found him in the kitchen, a still shadow at the sink. She turned on the light and shrieked when she saw his hands covered in blood. Don't worry, he lied. I just broke a glass. He began lying to her regularly after that. They'd been married three years when he disappeared for the first time. No warning, no note. She wasn't sure who to call. The two of them and the baby the last couple of years. A trio, sealed and compact. She kept working. Every night she told herself she wasn't waiting for the phone to ring, but she kept the TV volume so low it was barely audible. She ran a bath for Carrie, but then stopped the flow of water in case she'd missed a ring, used a blow dryer in short bursts, in between a silence that bred. When he returned, he rang the doorbell like a visitor. He didn't speak when she opened the door. He'd inherited the cabin after his father's death, he finally told her. He'd needed some time away. He knew he was failing as a father and as a husband, he'd added. He loved Carrie almost too fiercely. This fatherhood thing Keith had warned early on, I'm not sure it's for me. I'm not sure I can be responsible for another life. Keith was only 10 when his father took the family van and drove it into the St. John River with a bottle of pills in his belly and no intention of coming back. He did come back though, and maybe that was worse. We're a bunch of depressives, my family, is what Keith said. Lights out. Once Carrie is settled in bed, Kelly sits in a stiff wicker chair on the balcony overlooking the pool. The rooms with an ocean, ocean view had been too expensive. When Carrie is finally sleeping, Kelly reaches into her suitcase for the bottle of gin wrapped in a pink cashmere sweater that's too hot for this weather. She had an argument with herself before packing the bottle. She won. The year before Carrie was born, she'd promised Keith she'd stop drinking. She didn't really have a problem, but she drank to compensate when she felt judged, when she needed the feelings to overflow. That must have bothered him. On the balcony, Kelly tips back a shot. Keith always kept things inside too much. That's why his art never got great. He wasn't willing to put enough of himself into it, embrace radical honesty. 
Kelly sighs. Radical honesty. That phrase had been running through her head for years, popping up at the strangest of times. Radical honesty, she'd think, when she found a crumpled tissue with lipstick on it in Keith's pants pocket. Radical honesty, she'd think, when another man with a beauty mark near his lips kissed her in an elevator and tasted like stinky cheese. Radical honesty, she'd think, when Keith asked whether she thought he would make a good father. She'd start to drink, and the next thing she knew, she was puking into a stranger's stainless steel kitchen sink at a party, someone running to get Keith. He'd gather her hair in a ponytail, wipe her face. I'm fine, really. You're not. He'd take her to the bathroom, and she'd hide there. She'd wash her ponytail in the sink. She'd muster all her dignity and make her way to the car, fall into the passenger seat, pass out. She'd wake up in bed the next morning, still clothed. Their marriage carried on, like a train that had forgotten its passengers. After breakfast on their third day, as Carrie splashes in the ocean, Kelly sits under an umbrella shade and pours some of her gin into an orange juice from the buffet. She eases back into her chair, watches the waves, watches Carrie's breath shudder through her chest as a wave comes up and surprises her. Kelly starts to get up but relaxes when she hears Carrie squeal with laughter. Carrie was an accident. Pregnancy scared Kelly into submission. Keith rid the house of alcohol and she stayed clean. She felt as pure as she ever had, feathery. She could barely keep her feet tethered to the ground. Later, she could barely lift them. Keith became an anxious father even before Carrie was born. He began to go to the cabin alone some weekends. He was teetering. He said that being alone in the woods, hunting, portioning animals with a knife in his hands, made him feel necessary again. It's never easy for him, the, per the part about her having the money. She always had more. But he would always be back on Mondays. That last Monday, there was a knock at the door, but it wasn't him. Kelly doubled over in the front hallway like she'd been shot in the stomach. The police officer pressed her head into his chest and she clutched his arm. She lost a day or two to the drugs that were supposed to calm her down. Someone else identified the body. She saw him for the first time when he was scrubbed clean, laid out in a bed of polyester meant to resemble velvet. At the resort, she can pretend for short stretches that it's just her and Carrie, mother and daughter, an undisturbed unit. But when they get home, there'll be much more to contend with, Keith's possessions. On their fourth night, she puts the gin back in its sweater, sweater after one more drink. She can have this. She gets into bed beside Carrie and sleeps a dreamless sleep. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. one more time Carolyn Rebecca Leslie it was such a joy to have you here to find out more about the pivot readings go to pivotreadings.ca